0: This is World Lutheran News Digest, an audio news magazine bringing you a look at significant events in worldwide Lutheranism. WLN Digest is produced through the facilities of Worldwide KFUO, a broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Today on World Lutheran News Digest. I'm World Lutheran News Digest host Kip Allen. We witnessed one of God's marvels this week with a total eclipse of the sun. This rare event has often been associated with end times theology, especially in the early church. But for some in Islam, an eclipse can have a very special meaning. Many Sufi and Shia Muslims believe that a lunar eclipse on the first day of the Islamic month of Ramadan, followed by a solar eclipse in the middle of the month, will signal the reign of the 12th. Or hidden imam, the one who will establish a worldwide Islamic rule. Those two eclipses actually happen in the year 2027. I discuss this doctrine with Dr. Timothy Furnish, an expert in Islamic history, on today's World Lutheran News Digest. And now,
1: today's fast track. I'm Sarah Golseth with news in brief of interest to Lutherans worldwide. Martin Luther, The Idea That Changed the World, the full-length feature film that premiered in selected theaters in February, is set to air nationally on PBS at 7 p.m. Central Time on Tuesday, September 12th. Funded by Thrivent Financial, the film dramatizes the events that shaped Luther and examines the questions he wrestled with, such as, who am I, what is my purpose, and how do I get right with God? Included are insights and commentary from LCMS theologians and historians. President Trump's administration is denouncing the Islamic State group for carrying out genocide against Christians and other religious minorities in areas under its control. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson says the group is clearly responsible for genocide against Christians, Yazidis, and Shiite Muslims in Iraq, Syria, and elsewhere. A federal judge has struck down an Alabama law requiring more scrutiny for minors who seek an abortion without parental consent. U.S. Magistrate Judge Susan Russ Walker said that the law governing judicial bypass requests unconstitutionally imposes an undue burden on a minor who seeks an abortion. She said the law violates the minor's confidentiality by possibly bringing other people from her life into the process. The Alabama Attorney General's Office said it is reviewing the decision. Texas Governor Greg Abbott signed a bill restricting state funding for abortion insurance. The new law will keep Texans from having to pay for elective abortions through their insurance plans. Abbott called a special legislative session to focus on the bill, along with another bill requiring doctors and health clinics to report abortion complications to the state in greater detail. A federal appeals court ruled that Arkansas could withhold Medicaid funding to Planned Parenthood in response to a series of undercover sting videos recorded by a pro-life group.
0: This is Vol. Lutheran News Digest. I'm Kip Allen, World Lutheran News Digest host. My guest today is Dr. Timothy Furnish. We are going to be discussing implications of the eclipse that we just witnessed. Dr. Furnish, what is your background? I know that you are an expert in Islam and in Arabic affairs, and we're specifically interested in what's the Islamic world's view of the eclipse. Well,
2: Kip, I- yes i did doctorate in islamic history specializing in islamic eschatology which is end of time beliefs which yes does is related to sometimes to astronomical events and signs um i also did a masters degree master of arts and religion at concordia sem back in the back in the 80s well,
0: we've just had this this wonderful eclipse, and it was just beautiful here in St. Louis. I mean, actually seeing it, the whole Synod, the whole uh, International Center staff went out in the back and was viewing it through these special glasses, and it was a marvelous, marvelous display. I've never seen anything like that in my life and probably won't again. Solar eclipses have have uh, figured largely in in uh, many end times uh, theologies, including Christianity. But it has a very specific meaning, as I understand, in Islam. Doesn't it, it actually talk about how the uh, the final uh, Mahdi will come?
2: Well, there is a belief among some Muslims, and, you know, the world's 1.6 billion Muslims, a, a considerable number, perhaps not a majority, but based on research I've done, somewhere between 40 and 50% of them do believe in the Matthew, which is the eschatological figure. uh, The primary one in Islam, of course, the other one is Jesus. They believe Jesus returns as, as, of course, a Muslim, not a Christian, or not the the Messiah, I should say. Um, So, um, they're tied together in many ways. There is a belief among, uh, in particular, a, a subgroup of Islam called the Sufis, the Islamic mystics, that the It uh, relies upon some traditions, Islamic beliefs, that allegedly go back to Muhammad, sayings of Muhammad, I guess I should say, uh, that the Matthew will, will either be born or appear, depending on which sect of Islam you belong to, in a month when, when there is a month of Ramadan that has both a solar and a lunar eclipse. Now, I'm just a poor country history PhD, if I may steal a line from Dr. McCoy. Um, So I don't totally understand all the astronomy behind this, but I was trying to do a little bit of lay research on this, and and I, I guess it is not impossible astronomically for there to be a solar and a lunar eclipse in the same month.
0: I understand that that's actually going to happen in the year 2027.
2: 2027, yes, I was looking at that. It looks like a total solar lunar, excuse me, a total solar eclipse and a uh, at least partial lunar eclipse. So anyway, there are a number of Islamic, uh, modern Islamic websites, uh, particularly among the Sufis that I mentioned, who believe in this, who believe uh, that this is a sign. And they are pointing to that 2027 date, that that will either mark the... Either the birth of the Mahdi uh, or more likely his, his, his sort of I guess the onset of his um, of his historical mission to make the entire world Muslim, so that's, uh, that is one belief I mean again, not all, not all Muslims would share this, but a considerable number seem to What exactly
0: is the badi, for those of us who are not familiar with that uh, with that term
2: It means the rightly guided one or the divinely guided one. It is a figure that uh, both, Muslim, both Sunni and Shia Muslims believe in. It is uh, perhaps more fervently held among particularly the 12 Shia, that is the Shia of Iran and Iraq uh, and Lebanon, uh, because it, it, it is institutionalized in their branch of Islam. For The, the, the 12 Shia believe that um, there were 12 descendants of Muhammad uh, who were basically bloodline descendants, uh, you know, sons, grandsons and great-grandsons and so on. Uh, And then this line existed until the 9th century A.D., and along about 871, 873 A.D., the last of this line, who was also named Muhammad, uh, they believe that he did not die. He was a young boy um, that uh, disappeared, uh, they believe, mystically, and will return at the end of time in what the Iranian Shia and the Iraqi Shia call the 12th Imam. Uh, again, this is because the Shia developed this belief that, uh, that that the only rightful leader of the Islamic community was a bloodline descendant of Muhammad. The majority rejected this. The majority who came to be known as the Sunni said that the leader, of course at that time the Caliph, did not have to be a bloodline descendant of Muhammad. There was no dynastic imperative needed, and that it could be basically any uh, pious male member of the um, community who was, Particularly adept at ruling and, of course, waging jihad. Now, what happened, however, is that the Sunni also developed a belief in the Mahdi, not this occulted and reappearing Mahdi of the 12 Shia, but basically someone who will emerge onto the stage of history as a, as a great Islamic leader who will probably not initially, but eventually be recognized because of successes. More or less in conquering the Middle East, and eventually, with the help, uh, as I mentioned earlier, of the return of Jesus in, in taking over the whole world for Islam. So basically, the difference is this: the Shia and the Sunni believe much the same thing about the Mahdi. The, the Shia believe that the Twelver Shia, the largest branch, believe that he was here, he disappeared, and he returns. The Sunnis, um, uh, who are of course about 80-85% of the world's Muslims, believe that he has not been here yet and that he will basically be recognized as such by his, uh, I guess, military and political success.
0: So this is an end-time prediction on both the Sunni and the Shia branches of Islam. How do they see the world ending?
2: Well, that's interesting. It is It is a bit different from our view of eschatology because in our view of eschatology, once Christ returns... I think it's safe to describe it as: is the, the regular run of history is over. We're in sort of a different register when Christ turns, and it's it's the cosmological eschatological um, uh, battle between God and the forces of, uh, of Satan uh, that's kicked off. Uh, you know, with, with with Christ returning for Islam, it's a bit different. For Islam, eschatology encompasses really stuff that's within sort of the normal run of history, that when the Matthew and Jesus come and their belief, this is not the actually the end of time. So there, there actually is a sense in which it's, 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 it's a bit, I guess it's somewhat accurate to refer to it as eschatological, but as you may remember, you and I have spoken before a few times, I don't like to use the term apocalyptic, because apocalyptic uh, for many people has come to mean the literal end of the world, whether by, you know, mushroom clouds or zombies or or, you know, the election of Donald Trump, one of those or perhaps all of those <laughs> things. Um, for Muslims, when Jesus and the Matthews show up on earth, it's not really the end of time because they will take over the world and, and, and most, if not all, people will become Muslim and they will then issue in a period of uh, it's really utopian. It's a period of some number of years, and it doesn't say in the Quran. Uh, different These different Islamic Hadith traditions have different years, some say seven years, some say 40 years, some say an indeterminate period of time in which Jesus and the Matthew, or I should put it the other way because that's the, that's the order, the Matthew and Jesus, will rule the earth. Uh, and then eventually both of them, being merely mortal men like Muhammad, will die. And then, um, and then, again some undeterminate or indeterminate or undetermined period of time when things will get bad and get really bad. And then eventually, it will get so bad that uh, people will have fallen away from, you know, again, their belief, the true Islamic faith. And it will get so bad that there's a tradition that says all the pages will disappear from every Quran on earth. There will be no guidance left for people. And then eventually, at some point after that, it will be so bad that that the, the, the trumpets will sound uh and then there will be the last judgment and and and, and those that are that die, have died will be resurrected and the, the the living will also and everyone will queue up for judgment and Allah will judge everyone um, but but it's not it, there's a bit of a difference uh, it's sort of a, you, you can sort of mark a line between what Jesus and the Matthew do, and then this later judgment. So, my point is to say simply that when Jesus and the Matthew show up, it really, in a sense, isn't the end of time. It, it, it's kind of like the pre-end of time. It's sort of like you know when you go to the airport, it's pre-boarding. You're sort of pre-boarding for judgment when Jesus and the Matthew are here, but it's not quite judgment yet.
0: So I'm fascinated at the at the role Jesus has in Islam. We, of course, as Christians, recognize him as both being the Son of God and one of the the Triune, uh, and he is God as far as we are concerned. We know this, but Islam also ha- recognizes that Jesus has a very special role, even though they deny his
2: divinity. Yes, he is uh, really sort of the assistant to the Mati, if you will, and, and, and really the sort of division of labor is the Mati is the sort of temporal warlord who leads the forces of the Muslims in battle to take over the world, and Jesus is kind of his spiritual counselor and advisor, and Jesus takes care of the, um, uh, I guess, sort of the, uh, the, the higher level issues. For instance, most of the Hadiths say, for instance, um, ISIS relies on this quite a bit because they're very strong proponents of, of Islamic eschatology. Um, uh, a number of Hadiths say that uh, Jesus will have to be the one that kills the the Dajjal. The Dajjal, D-A-J-J-A-L, is the, is literally in Arabic as the deceiver, but he's the Antichrist figure in Islam. And he cannot be killed by the Mahdi. Uh The Mahdi will be in charge of, you know, defeating the forces of the West and the Christians. And, you know, a lot of Muslims believe, you know, NATO and, and, and the United States and so on and so forth, perhaps the Russians. But... It, But he will not be able to kill the Dajjal. It will have to be Jesus who has sort of, in a sense, sort of the higher spiritual power that will have to kill the Dajjal, probably somewhere in Jerusalem.
0: Intriguing. (laughs) I also understand that in the Quran, uh, more miracles are ascribed to Jesus than are to Muhammad.
2: Yeah, particularly in uh, Surah al Maid, the chapter chapter of the table, uh, many, yes, many many miracles that, that that you know echo what happens you know the actual true story in the bible uh some of them are refracted it seems through some of what we would call the um, the gnostic gospels and so on and so forth like the book of thomas we have the we have the usual suspects of course which are probably accurate of, you know jesus raising the dead i mean insofar as the Qur'an reflects the Bible, I mean accurate. Jesus raising the dead, uh, you know, gives blind people sight, things like that, heals people. But then you have strange things that, again, only show up in books that did not make it into the canon of the New Testament, like, for instance, the book of Thomas, the so-called Gospel of Thomas, uh, where Jesus, as a young boy, makes clay birds and and, and throws them up in the air, and they become alive and fly off, and that's reproduced almost verbatim in the Qur'an
0: intriguing that the Quran seems to have been based in large part upon early Christian writings, um, whether they're heretical or not, uh, which would, of course, I think, tend to refute the idea that, uh, that uh, Muhammad was simply repeating what was told him by the archangel.
2: Right. Very, very much that's the case. I mean, I've studied this for years, and I'm convinced that that's exactly what happens. Islam, Islam, in large measure, is simply cribbed from inaccurate stories, in heretical accounts of, the, uh, of, you know, the Gospels and the early church uh, authorities. So, um, so so I really think if you look at it that way, uh, there's a sense in which I, th- I think, although, of course, I think Islam is totally wrong and theologically a dead end, of course, being a Christian. <laughs> but I, I think one can look at it and say, well, you know, they've got, They've got something in there that maybe we can work with uh, in terms of approaching Muslims in terms of uh, missiological approach and evangelism. I mean, for instance, there is no other world religion whose text, whose whose sacred text, have Jesus in it. Um, so, I mean, it's the wrong Jesus, it's the incorrect Jesus, it's certainly an incomplete Jesus, but it's a Jesus that we can approach Muslims about.
0: Although they would, of course, immediately reject the concept of him being divine. That's one of the reasons why uh, certain certain branches of Islam accuse Christians of being polytheists.
2: Right. That plus the Trinity, of course. Yes. Exactly.
0: It's interesting also that the Quran recognizes the status of Christianity and Judaism, where it would where it would reject such things as Austracism or Hindu.
2: Right. Uh, Islam recognizes Judaism and Christianity as fellow what they call Ahl al-Kitab, people of the book, because they have they have a written revelation from the true God. Now, of course, then it goes on in other places in the Quran, as well as in many places in the, these Hadiths that I mentioned, and, and just the whole corpus of Islamic uh, jurisprudence, uh, which explains that the, the Bible uh, was corrupted, in fact, altered, And and they believe, had had inserted into it false stories about the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, which, of course, both of which the Quran explicitly rejects. Um, But they do, nonetheless, say that insofar as the the Old Testament and New Testaments, the Hebrew Scriptures and the Christian Scriptures, insofar as they do not conflict with the Quran, they're accurate. Of course, the problem is, of course, as you correctly identified a moment ago, on the key issues, they do certainly conflict.
0: And that's rather hard to reconcile between the two sides.
2: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I remember uh, when I was in graduate school at Ohio State doing my doctorate in Islamic history, I had a friend who was doing graduate work in the Arabic language, and she came to me one day, and she was Catholic, but she announced to me that she had decided she was a (laughs) Catholic-Muslim, or she may have said Muslim-Catholic, I don't remember which she put first. And I said to her, no, you're simply confused. Um, this is impossible. It's like being a Michigan and Ohio State fan. It is impossible. You cannot be both. Or, I don't know what, a Cardinals and a Cubs fan, perhaps. Oh, heresy, heresy. <laughs> it's, exactly. It's it's impossible. I said, beyond the theological issue, just a common sense issue. One religion says that Christ was crucified and resurrected, and the other religion says that both of those are untrue. So you cannot belong to an ideology that says two things that are diametrically opposed.
0: How is she justifying that?
2: Oh, you know your typical um, sort of ecumaniac, uh, Can we all just get along? All religions have equal or have some sort of valid pathway to truth in them, and I'm just going to try to split the difference.
0: Okay. <laughs> excuse right? me. I'm, excuse me for chortling there. <laughs> That's why I told her she was confused. <laughs> well. I want to get back to the, this eclipse again a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, because w- w- there is mysticism in both Christianity and in uh, Islam. Mm-hmm. and uh, But I think we don't quite take it, it to the same extent that they do. I mean, we talk about signs in the heaven. In fact, I heard talk about that yesterday during the uh, eclipse, and certainly mm-hmm. that's a sign of the heaven. But it doesn't mean that Jesus is about to come. At least it doesn't right. say anything mm-hmm. in Scripture specific to
2: that. Well a lot of it i think interesting thing Kip, that i I've noticed over the years since i've been since I did my dissertation back in the nineties and written a couple of books on this topic and studied it it's that in many ways. <laughs> The, 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 there, there is sort of a parallel development, and I, I do think to some extent uh, Islam, at least some of the Islamic writers, particularly the Sunni ones, have been influenced by evangelical Christians on this issue. There's been sort of a convergence, if you will, between uh, some in the Islamic world and the evangelical sort of you know obsession with figuring out the eschatological timetable you know, with the left behind. and Of course, this all started with Hal Lindsey, the late great planet Earth, back in the early 70s. And it's still very rampant in the evangelical world. Uh, You know, those of us in the Lutheran fold, as well as a lot of folks in the Catholic and Orthodox tradition, are not as obsessed with this. I mean, we're more content to say, you know, uh, we don't know when the end's going to come. It will be whenever God decides. And we really can't do much about it. We need to be prepared for it, have our lamps ready, but we really can't do anything about it. But in the evangelical world, you know, there's a strain that believes, and this goes back to the 19th century with the Restorationist movement, and it comes up through modern times with people like John Hagee and other people, that there are things you can do to um, what we call in the field, uh, the very tiny subfield of this, uh, we call hot-wiring the apocalypse. (laughs) Uh, You can do things to, you know, I mean, Hagee believes that Jesus won't come back until the temple is rebuilt, correct? I've heard that, yes. I mean, I, I, my opinion is Jesus can come back whenever he wants. I don't think he needs a temple. I mean, maybe he'd like one, but I don't think he needs one. He can come back whenever he wants. This is rampant in part of the Islamic world. I mean, st- ISIS is very... Big fan of this, and I might mention I, I gave a talk at, at, at Concordia Seminary. Oh, I think it was fall of 2014, and uh, it's available on a lot of or on my website if people want to find it. I gave a 40 minute talk about this. ISIS believes that you can indeed hotwire the apocalypse if you you know uh, I, one of the things that they're doing with their horrible beheadings, their reimposition of um, slavery among the, the, the non people of the book, like these Yazidis. Uh, who are probably what's left of the Zoroastrian religion and other things, uh, they are trying to basically, in a sense, what they're trying to do really is goad us into invading Syria and Iraq, uh, in direct conflict with them, because they then think that that will spark, that that will sort of force Allah's hand, and he will send the Mahdi, who will deliver them, uh, and then start taking over the world. They really believe this. Now, this view is often described to the to the, to the Shia of Iran, to the Islamic Republic of Iran, in terms of um, uh, getting nuclear weapons, they would use nuclear weapons on Israel uh, in order to force the Matthew or the, in their point of view, the Twelfth Imam. I don't believe this from having studied Iran for a long time. I think they just want nuclear weapons so they can throw their weight around and no one will bother them. But the, the idea that uh, you, can, you can, as I said, hotwire the apocalypse, I believe to a certain extent has crept into Islam from... Uh, evangelical Christianity, because when i back in the early 90s, and again, I was writing my doctoral dissertation, I read a bunch of Arabic books on this topic, and I was amazed at how many of them, you know, when is that, 20-some years ago, how many of them were citing Pat Robertson and Hal Lindsey and people like that? And I was in Jerusalem a few years ago and checked out some of the bookstores uh, in in the Arab quarter, and you've got the same sorts of books, and some of them do this. So there's, ironically, there's sort of this cross-pollination between... um, evangelical thought on this topic, evangelical Christian, particularly American, and uh, many of the Sunni thinkers in Islam, where they, they both come to this idea that there are things, there are actions they can take to get God to do what they want them to do. Frightening thought. It is, in a sense. It really is, because uh, there's a sense in which, not to test dispersions on our evangelical brethren but particularly i mean i mean they, they certainly aren't doing anything violent which we, we can certainly uh, we certainly know that but, but some of the islamic groups isis believes this there's an element of al-qaeda that believes this there are others again mainly sunni groups that, that, that sort of tend in this direction um it's you know in, in a very profound sense it's irrational to us it doesn't fit into any sort of um international relations paradigm or, you know, you won't find this discussed, frankly, very honestly or very uh, in terms of understanding very well in foreign policy magazine. But there it is. And this is driving a lot of what's going on. I mean, you, you noticed a few months ago, um, ISIS, I guess it was back in the winter, spring winter, ISIS lost the town of Dabak. They they were in control of the town of Dabak, which is in northern Syria. They had lost control of it. A lot of people said, well, this spells the, the end of ISIS because ISIS... For the first couple of years, it was after the proclamation of its caliphate. ISIS called its main magazine Dabak, which is after this town, and almost every issue had something in there about these hadiths and the eschatology about the coming of the Mahdi and that sort of thing. So, so a lot of people were crowing, I guess, sort of uh, preemptively, triumphantly, that the loss of the town of Dabik meant that ISIS had lost its eschatological fervor or drive. No. If you study these groups in history, like I've been doing for some years, what they do when they when they suffer an eschatological timetable setback, they just reset the timetable. They just re-explain it. Well, you know, we'll eventually get Dabik back, or because the belief is that the, the hadith, uh, the, 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 produ- the prominent hadith that's relevant here, says that the the major end time battle between the Muslims and the forces of the West be at this town of Dabak. I'm sorry, I should have explained that just, <laughs> up front. Um, but ISIS simply reinterprets and reformulates and says, well, we'll get ISIS back later, excuse me, we'll get Dabak back later, or we really don't need to hold the town the battle just has to be there you know we can attack the you know the infidel forces as they hold it or something so you get a lot of this reformulation um and and again my point is that isis hasn't lost any of its eschatological fervor they may have just had to like change the timetable but they haven't lost their ideas
0: well dr furnish we're about out of time i'd like to let our audience know how they can uh, find out about you and about your books and about your writings
2: Well, thank you, Kip. I have a new website. For many years, I had one called matthewatch.org, but I've uh, terminated that one. And I have one called Occidental Jihadist. So if you just Google Occidental Jihadist or The Occidental Jihadist, it will come up. And um, as I said, you can get to my books there, and I've also got the link uh, to the talk I gave at Concordia Seminary a couple years ago, which I think is very, very relevant uh, in, in these regards. Dr. Furnish,
0: thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your view of this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you, Kip. World Lutheran News Digest may be heard every Wednesday at 2.30 p.m. and again at 9.30 a.m. Saturday Central Time on Worldwide KFUO. It may also be heard anytime streaming online at kfuo.org. Join us again next Wednesday for another new edition of World Lutheran News Digest. I'm your host, Kip Allen.